Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. We would like to get into some listener feedback this season, so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything even tangentially related to the podcast, you can send an email to Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S, at tracknerds.com, or hit me up on Twitter, where my handle is, at tracknerds. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. So yes, when I sat down to rewatch The Kite Runner, I was almost kind of like wondering if I put it at the wrong place in our timeline because a big chunk of the movie, like 40% of the movie, takes place before Charlie Wilson's war in Afghanistan. Right. And then it kind of jumps ahead into the mid-80s, still kind of concurrent with. And then it's really just the last probably third of the film that takes place in the year 2000, which is where I put it in our timeline here. But I, I still think that's okay. Right. I think it's a good place to put it, too, because there's not too many movies. Actually, this might be the only movie I think that I've ever seen that actually shows, you know, Afghanistan between the end yes. of the Soviet occupation and then 9-11. Usually it's, you get, you know, one or the other. But, yeah, this this is it. He at the end of this movie, when when Amir goes to Afghanistan, it's it's in the year 2000. So, I mean, it's it's like right before before 9-11, essentially, which is then when pretty much every other movie that is set in Afghanistan takes place. Right. And I think what this movie does do a better job of, though, than Charlie Wilson's War, because that was more really from the American side, this puts yeah. you in the lives of the Afghani people, and especially when they are back in 1978, and we talked about it on the episode of Charlie Wilson's War, how modernized Kabul was before yep. the Soviet invasion. And you really, really see this here. This almost seems like a Western country. Yeah. And we and then we kind of talked then at the end of Charlie Wilson's war, how all they had done was open the door for the Taliban to, Taliban to move in. And then that's what we see when he comes back. So he escapes, the main character, Amir, escapes the country during the Russian invasion. We see him mm-hmm. and his father escape. And again, that would have led into what we talked about in Charlie Wilson's War. And then he goes back to track down some family and friends and the Taliban is in charge. And we see full on, like you said, right before 9-11, here is the Taliban. This is only about a five year window that the Taliban was actually in charge of Afghanistan. And it's harrowing. And just the juxtaposition between what life was life in Afghanistan in 1978 versus the year 2000. And it's just kind of beyond depressing. And I did mention the Kite Runner and Khalid Hussaini's novels in the Charlie Wilson's War episode, kind of forgetting that I had it further up on the list here. But I highly recommend... Actually, you know what? I'm going to say I highly recommend the books. This isn't a great movie. It's not a bad movie, but it's definitely not a great movie. No, I, I agree. And uh, this is a <laughs> this is one of the few times where I actually have read the book. Um, usually it's not the case, <laughs> which I know for you is probably the opposite. You almost always have, if there's a book-movie combo, you've almost always also read the book. Is that, uh, is that accurate? I would, I, would, I would say I'm still probably under 50%, especially on this list. I, so, I mean, I... I, I, mean, I Oh, not necessarily. I just meant like movies that you like that also have a book associated with them. You will have almost always read the book if you like the movie enough. Um, I don't know. I, I you know what? I've never actually examined that that closely. We'll, we'll say okay. yes to make me sound smart. <laughs> okay, but yeah. So this is this is a rare instance where I actually I have read the book and I I I did really like it. Yeah, right. And it is definitely better than the movie, which again is something people always say. But I mean, because it's mostly true. Yeah. Well, and because the the book is written by a guy who is actually from 
he's from Afghanistan and immigrated to the United States. And he's written several books. This is the only one that I've written is The Kite Runner, which I think is probably his most popular. Yes. But he was like came to America and was a doctor and then just started writing you know, basically as like a, a side, like as a hobby. And then uh, after he, you know, became successful, he retired from being a doctor and now is only a, a novelist. And I think all of his books are set, either set in Afghanistan or have Afghans as the main character or both. Yes. And then the other one I definitely recommend, again, I mentioned it before, was uh, Thousand Splendid Sons, which I think is as good, if not maybe even better than The Kite Runner. So I do highly recommend that one as well. But just it just really just gives you a look into their lives here. And a few things that kind of are highlighted in this story that I don't think were necessarily as obvious in Charlie Wilson's War, although I think you did you did mention it to some extent. But so part of the conflict in the show is the Pashtuns versus the Hazaras. Mm-hmm. And so we had kind of talked about Afghan being named Afghanistan because it's the land of the Afghans, but so the Afghans are essentially the Pashtuns, but there are other ethnic groups within the country, and the Hazaras yeah. are like the third largest group, but they're getting picked on, and that's kind of what we see is the family servant and the kid's best friend is a Hazaran, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but that causes a lot of conflict with the bullies, and then even their own friendship, the, the kid starts to question it. Are we actually friends, or is it just because we live together and I'm your servant? And do actually do you see me as subservient because I'm a Hazaron? And the kid almost feels bad because the Hazaron kid is so obsequious to him at times that he's just like, is he kissing up to me because he sees himself as less than me? Are we actually friends? And it's it's kind of complicated. And then the I mean the ultimate kind of conflict in the film. I hate to even talk about it. it it's it is so awkward, especially in a PG thirteen movie that I was rip off the band-aid so the, the the bullies rape the kid who's the servant to the main kid yeah. and it almost feels out of place in this film it doesn't feel like it's it's basically it's disproportionate to the events that are going on and mm-hmm. then Amir then feels guilty basically for the rest of his life because he witnessed it and didn't step in right of course it's not like he could do anything about it they probably would have just raped him too but he also but then he lied about it after the fact or right right he pretends that he didn't that it didn't happen or that he didn't know True. that it happened that was the issue right right and he uh he could have got the boys the, in trouble and just pretended he didn't see anything right and what's the little is the little his name is it Hassan I think that's right yeah yes and he uh you know then he also kind of treats him like shit you know he gets him right. kicked out and everything. like he does a lot more than just not st- stand up when he's getting re- like he does a lot of stuff afterwards that he also feels really guilty about. True. Yeah, exactly. He basically transfers his own guilt onto the other kid. Like basically it's like, yeah, I'm going to pretend this didn't happen. and I feel guilty about it, but you're not a good person for making me feel this way. And right. Yeah. And yeah. So he then, then he, his family leaves and this, this kind of situation is never really resolved. And then decades later in the year 2000 is when he goes back, finds out his friend had been killed by the Taliban and but mm-hmm. he, that he had a son who's now an orphan. And then it's a, a matter of tracking down the son to take him home. And they kind of referenced that him and his wife can't have kids. So this is the kind of their way to have a son. And again, that they find out is actually his nephew because the kid's dad wasn't actually his dad. 
Amir's dad was his dad, and, but it was all kind of a family secret kind of thing. And and again, all that feels kind of contrived within the movie, and it does work way better in the book. It's, it's just about earning these things, which we've talked about. You have to set them up, and I think in the film, they're not necessarily set up well enough. But in the book, everything just feel a lot more emotionally impactful and earned. So, uh, and to the extent of, I think I had kind of conflated some of this stuff maybe actually having happened to Khalid Hosseini, the author, and he's actually, I guess, has issues with that. So I, I think I even told you off air last time that the whole smuggling out of the country during the Soviet invasion in the tanker truck was something he actually did. It's like, oh, nope, I think I heard wrong, remember wrong. It sounds like that that had happened to people he knew, but he himself did not get out of the country that way. And apparently he's had a big issue with people assuming that things in his novels and stories are real and basically mm. wanting to ask him about that. And actually, I don't know if you saw this, like the actors in the movie, the the studio or production company had to pay for them to get relocated because they were getting bullied over the things their characters did in the movie. Oh, really? And to the point like getting threatened and stuff. So the actors, the kid actors actually had to get pulled and moved to different schools for their wow. own safety because of kind of the fallout here. So it was kind of controversial. And then uh, Husseini's actually taken like heat for like, well, why you, why you got to make Afghanistan look bad? Or like, because he basically, he's just kind of being the author speaking the truth. And so people, right. will, Af- Afghans will kind of confront him, not saying he's wrong, just saying like, why you got, why do you have to tell that story? It makes us look bad. Don't tell, don't tell those stories. But again, I think an author's role is kind of to just shine a light on some of these injustices and I think you almost though too by showing the warts of a country or a people, you're showing their humanity, and I think it actually makes it easier to empathize with the Afghani's if you see these stories than it does if you just kind of have a two dimensional view of them one way or the other. Yeah. So I did want to talk about then the Taliban itself, which we really didn't get to talk about in the episode of Charlie Wilson's War. We just kind of that whole film just kind of set it up to the Taliban taking over and as someone who has been to Afghanistan multiple times and the Taliban is still an issue there why don't you kind of talk about the Taliban as far as uh I don't know just kind of as best you can as far as coming to power or then also maybe a little bit about Sharia law and just kind of the what they were what their goals were and where we're at today with the Taliban so the Taliban is kind of um they refer to themselves like their name for themselves is the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan they did not come to power like directly after the Soviets left. There was a, a lot of um, infighting between different militia groups, but they did end up taking power in, in 1996. So they ruled the country from 1996 until 2001, which in a couple episodes, we'll find out why they lost control of the country in 2001. But so for five years, they ruled the country, which, yeah, like, like you, you said, I I thought that it was a lot longer than that, but I guess there really was no, you know, big group that held control of the country at, you know, between the Soviets leaving and then 1996 when the Taliban took over. But they're basically Islamic fundamentalist extremists. They enforce Sharia law. So it's a, you know, Islamic religious law in the country. Like, you know, you see in the movie with the uh, the public executions for stuff like adultery. But they, I mean, they, they still hold uh, quite a bit of power inside Afghanistan today. There are definitely regions of the country that are still essentially under control of the Taliban, or at least, you know, very influenced by the Taliban. And they are still a 
political organization, um, and they're actually the the main the political organization that the United States government is in talks with at time of recording to try and uh, broker some sort of peace deal to uh, allow American forces to leave after almost 20 years that we've been there. Basically say, hey, we'll leave if you don't take over the rest of the country again kind of thing? Uh, not necessarily. Like, I think they basically they, they well, it's it's pretty much a given that they're going to, you know, have control of the country again, or at least parts of the country. But I think the main thing is trying to ensure that they don't start having like state harbored terrorist organizations in their country, because, you know, a, a important distinction to make is between the Taliban and then groups like Al Qaeda right. and ISIS or or in Afghanistan ISIS K you know it, those are like terrorist organizations whereas the Taliban is it's a restrictive regime within a country right? it's a restrictive regime right within the country of Afghanistan even like they were definitely buddy buddy with those organizations but they like they are not planning and carrying out terrorist attacks right they just provided safety and security and for people who did so the main that's like the biggest thing is you know keeping the taliban from harboring terrorists again in the future which is kind of the reason which we'll get into in no right in our 9-11 episode but it's kind of the reason why they you know got destroyed by the united states in the first place because they weren't willing to hand over Osama bin Laden after 9-11. Yeah, so unfortunately, our mission was never to liberate Afghanistan. It was to eliminate the risk of terrorism to the Western world. So sorry, Afghans, but that's not necessarily our I say job or responsibility because, you know, to what extent did we, you know, did we open up the door for the Taliban to take over in the first place? But yeah, it's it's a mess. Right. And and it's like, you know, you go in to try and, you know, eliminate al-Qaeda well, to do that, you have to invade Afghanistan. And to do that, you have to cripple the Taliban regime. So it's kind of a right. a domino effect. And then by the time you're done, well, now there's this giant power vacuum. And you can't just leave because the Taliban is, is essentially a, a direct result of just cutting and running the first time. Right. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a mess. Like I said, and we will get more into that in the, in the future here. And... Probably the last thing I wanted to talk about is the the whole this whole kite fighting thing in general and kind of the title of the film. And mm-hmm. this is a sport that just doesn't really exist in the Western world, but is super popular in the, in the Middle East and other countries. And it is kind of interesting. So the whole idea, you know, the only reason it's called the kite runner is that they fight kites and you try to cut the other person's kite down by literally cutting their string with your string. And then a kite mm-hmm. runner will go and try to basically claim the falling kite. It almost seems like the, the custom right. is once it's been cut, whoever gets to it first now owns that kite. And that, and everyone's okay with that. It's like, yep, you got to buy the kite. But if it, yours' kite's cut down, you lost your right to it unless you can get there first. Yeah. And so the main kid's friend, Hassan, is kind of a really, really good instinctive kite runner. He just kind of knows where to be. And so that's why the movie is called The Kite Runner. It's actually not named after uh-huh. the protagonist is named after the protagonist's friend and what was i thought was crazy too is doing a little research on kite running and they actually coat the string with well glue makes it harder but then also powdered glass yeah i read a biography of colin powell when i was like 
oh man, I was probably in like fourth grade or fifth grade. <laughs> I don't remember. It was, I, it was, I think it was when he was the secretary of state. Okay. So whenever that would have been. Yeah, he, he talks about, you know, because he grew up in New York, I believe. And he was talking, doing the same thing, you know, having kite battles. And he said that they would like get glass bottles and break them up and then put the broken pieces on train tracks. And the train would run over it oh. and it would basically pulverize the glass into a really fine powder. Then they would put, you know, put glue on the string and then, you know, put it in the in the powdered glass. So it made the it made the string like really abrasive to where, you know, right. if you ran into another kite or another kite string, it would just it was like razor wire basically to slice right through it. Right. And it almost looks silly in the movie, like the way they're flying these kites and getting and controlling them in such a way that they're actually having that much control over whether it's more than just luck if you cut this other string. But then I watched a YouTube video about again, I don't know if they were specifically Afghani, but you know, other people who had this custom in New York flying these kites and nope. They're maneuvering it the exact same way, and it's just like, nope, I just don't know how it works, and that's actually yeah. a good depiction of how you do it. I'm kind of surprised Colin Powell got into it. Did he live nearby one of these cultures that was, or I guess, what's his background? That, it kind of surprised me that he was into it. I don't remember. Like that, The only thing that I remember is that he flew the kites, and then huh. they put the, the glass. I, I don't remember if it was like specific to some sort of like Central Asian thing, or if it was just, you know... Oh god! Happened to be a thing that he did growing up that was the same thing that right. these kids did. But and the one thing too that I remember thinking like, well, if these if they got glass on them, wouldn't they just be cutting their hands? But well, I'm guessing they probably just put the glass on the higher up part, not the part you're actually controlling. But I yeah, did. I think it's just the first the first however many feet from the kite because then you know the rest yeah. of it doesn't really matter because that, none of that's right. going to be anywhere close to the kite. But I did see a lot of these guys in the YouTube video. I found they all had their fingers wrapped with like pretty thick oh. tape and stuff, so you could let the the string slide along your fingers and not worry about getting right. them, getting them cut and it was yeah. it was kind of interesting but yeah in the movie they don't really show any of that yeah just kind of interesting tradition that you know these little sports you don't think about i mean it never occurred to me that fighting with kites was ever a thing anywhere even until this book and movie came out and then you're like oh okay that's a sport i've never heard of and actually kind of looks kind of fun <laughs> i did want to bring up the Oh, I don't know if you'd call it a tradition or a custom. That's that's probably a really generous name for it. But I guess we'll go with custom. Custom called the uh, the Bakabazi or the Dancing Boys. Sometimes they're called Chai Boys. Bakabazi is a it's a Dari word. It means boy play, and it's you know young young boys like the kid that you see in the movie around that age that dance for groups of older guys and, you know, serve them tea and stuff. And it's uh, heavily connected to like child prostitution. A lot of times they're sexually abused and it's, it's one of those things. It was technically illegal under Taliban law under the, the Taliban regime, but it was, it's like, it's still a very common practice, even, even today in Afghanistan, it's a really common practice. And there are there have been even like uh, controversial stories of American military officials either sweeping under the rug or ignoring the practice to try and garner support from either Afghan military commanders or police commanders or groups that they're, you know, trying to to gain favor with maybe a village elder or something. But yeah, so in the movie that where he's dancing with the little uh, bells 
on his ankles and they're clapping along like that is it's uh that's not something that's made up just for the movie it's not exaggerated at all it's actually really common and it happens all the time gotcha right because it's pretty easy to see the movie and to see like oh this is just kind of some perverted thing they kind of threw in here to kind of heighten the tension and it's like no this is a common practice yeah right it, it's easy to to look at that and think oh well that's something that they you know that they made like that's just because the guy is like a, a creepy villain that they made that up for right. him it's like no that's that's a thing that's common yeah. yeah that happens all all the time interesting which is so weird because it's almost one of those weird things where they actually don't consider it a homosexual thing like it's almost like tangent it's like separate from that because obviously islam doesn't allow homo- well i guess you, guess you did say it was officially banned by the taliban but they kind of do it anyway just cut as a custom right i don't know but i feel like they see i guess I don't know enough about it. I feel like they would classify it as different than a same-sex adult relationship. That it's kind of like a separate thing. The same people who are doing this aren't necessarily, you know, dating adult men their age. It's like they only have this little thing on the side. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's, I don't know, it's, ancient Greeks kind of would do similar things too with the whole catamites and stuff like that. So it's it's kind Mm -hmm. of, it's not even just within the Arab world here. So the other thing I was going to mention about Sharia, which actually, uh, so on Wikipedia, it actually says Sharia law is technically redundant, that Sharia itself means law. So it's the kind yeah. of that Islamic law. So Sharia law is technically redundant. So I, so I want to talk about that, The Handmaid's Tale and how it's easy. Okay, see, I haven't, I haven't seen Handmaid's Tale. Is that, is this supposed to be like a, not an analogy, but a, is this supposed to be like Sharia law? Essentially, it's Christian Sharia takes over the U.S., and, okay. And so, yeah. So basically, the point is that as much as we definitely decry Sharia law, and we don't want to see it, a place like the Taliban taking over drives us crazy, and we're like, oh, this is so gross, and these Islamic fundamentalists that are taking over and forcing the extreme version of their religion on the populace. But then at the same time, a lot of the stuff that maybe they're doing is literally in their religious text. And so when you look at something like A Handmaid's Tale, everything they're doing, they are justifying with scripture, even if it's in such a right. way that's fictionalized and no one in the U.S. actually believes these things. But they're they're pulling stuff from the Bible to justify these extreme actions. And it basically, yeah, so The Handmaid's Tale basically is kind of showing a version of Christian Sharia taking over the U.S. in a way that obviously seems totally unrealistic, but at the same time, it is happening maybe in these uh, Muslim countries. And, you know, I'm not saying it could happen here, but it's almost like a what if. And, you know, where do we draw the line on some of these things? If people are justifying legislation that's based off their faith, well, is that become its own slippery slope that maybe we don't talk about? And like, oh, if you're going to follow it by letter of the law, you mentioned the stoning for adultery. Well, yeah, that's in the Bible too, right? We just now don't do it anymore. So, yeah, you could easily see a group saying, "Whoop, it's in the book, so we're going to justify it and start it back up." That's basically why you can see a country like Afghanistan to kind of bring it all back. In 1978, they were more progressive, but then a more traditional group comes in and says, "Nope, the book says this, so we're gonna do it this way." And yeah. you got to have a beard. We're gonna stone adulterers and just. It's scary and maybe not as far removed from our own world as we like to pretend, I guess. Yeah. And there are, there's differing kind of degrees of how Sharia law is implemented. So like, you know, there are some, some countries where like we see in the movie, it's, it's 100%. Everyone has to abide by it. And, you know, you're punished in accordance with it, whether or not you are a Muslim or, or not. 
But then there are, you know, other countries, like, for instance, if you go to like the United Arab Emirates, right, you go, you go to Dubai, like technically, that country, it is like the name says, it is an Arab Emirate. So there are Muslim laws that apply to people in that country to a certain extent. But at the same time, they recognize that not everyone in their country is Muslim. So they, you know, they have freedom of religion in their country, like there are synagogues, and there are churches and not as many as there are mosques, but they do exist. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird, like they're how they apply certain rules, like, uh, for instance, I was flying through there once, and it was during Ramadan. Hmm. And so when you're in the airport during during Ramadan, during Ramadan, um, Muslims aren't allowed to eat during uh, from sunup to yeah. sundown. So if you were out in the terminal, um, you weren't, you know, and it was daylight, you weren't allowed to eat. It was actually against the law. Oh, interesting. But they allowed the restaurants, you could serve food and you could go to one of like a restaurant in the terminal and eat. You just couldn't do it out in the terminal. Oh, interesting. So you still could yeah. break the law, so to speak, but just you could, be right. kind you of... could go to a restaurant and, and eat if you wanted to. But if you brought, you know, to do it outside of basically, they said that the businesses were free to operate however they wanted to in the airport, but out in the terminal in the common area you were not allowed to eat during daylight hours okay. during Ramadan. Okay. And is it technically a dry country as far as alcohol? Yeah. So they, well, it's not, you can like buy and sell alcohol there. You know, there's bars, there's clubs, oh, okay. there's restaurants where you okay. buy. Um, but there's no, it's, it's against the law to make alcohol there. So there's no such thing as like a distillery or a brewery or something. Oh, gotcha. So it's all imported. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I was saying the other one I heard I thought was that women can't wear bikinis, right, on the beach? Or is that somewhere else? Maybe? Uh, well, it depends on what beach you go to. But okay. I mean, there are there are beaches where that's it's not enforced like it's, you know. OK, but maybe frowned upon even if it's not enforced. Um, no, not necessarily just because like on, on the beach, a lot of those are like touristy areas. Right. So they, are, you know, which, uh, again, it, it's kind of a it's not really like defined but as long as it's not anything too crazy you're probably okay okay and, and also like they have there are like rules against public displays of affection there oh, okay but most and most of them are kind of they're kind of cultural it's like it's it's offensive and, and inappropriate but not necessarily like you're getting it arrested oh no you can you can be arrested oh okay yeah which and and, and you know the, they're not robots like you're not gonna get arrested and put in jail for like holding like hugging your wife or holding your wife's hand or even like your girlfriend or whatever. But if you're having like a makeout sesh on the beach okay. and a cop is walking by, he'll probably come over and say something to you. But, you know, he won't just straight up arrest you. Okay. But he could. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, yes, before we get into 9-11, we're going to look at a couple other issues here over the next couple of weeks. The first is a favorite movie of mine that will deal with the Maori people in New Zealand. The 2002 film Whale Rider. <laughs> 